Hello, and welcome to Global. I'm Travis Green, and I'll be your host today. Today's topic is going to be on migration. This episode is going to be slightly different. You're going to hear some commentary with two interviews woven in. The, for the interviews, we spoke with Chris Livesay, a foreign correspondent based in Rome, Italy, who has covered migration for PBS NewsHour. And we also spoke with Jorge Ceballos, IRI's program manager in its Guatemala office. Migration is proof of an interconnected world. What happens on one side of the globe, be it a war, violence, economic hardship, or even changes in climate, can impact politics a world away. For the most part, people want to stay in the areas that they are familiar with and their homes, but not if they can't survive. A dictatorship that doesn't allow for basic services to enter his country leads to 3.5 million people fleeing in search of a place to survive and causes countries across an entire region to revisit their border policies, hiring practices, and their political slogans. Violence and no chance for economic advancement push people to look for ways to better their lots in life by tapping into criminal networks that will move them through unforgiving geographies and war zones into safety, only to find that politicians use their presence to justify creating nationalistic policies. So to give you a, a sense of the, the magnitude of it, think back to 2015. That's where most of those images of, of rafts and, and ships with lots of migrants kind of spilling over the edge, washing up on the shores of Europe. Those are where those images come from. We're talking about approximately 1 million migrants arriving in Europe uh, in that year alone. So a lot of the, the iconography comes from several years ago. Fast forward to May of 2019, it's a virtual trickle in, in comparison. The um, majority of migrants now are, are not even able to come in through Italy due to a lot of legislation, a lot of changing politics uh, that have become much more anti-migrant, more uh, right-wing in Italy. So that's pushed uh, the flows into uh, the east and to the west. So to the east, you have more migrants going to Greece now. Uh, and in the West, you have more migrants going to Spain. But the, the headline here is that it's gone down from a massive wave to, to a much smaller number. And as I mentioned before, that has a lot to do with changing appetites in Europe. At the beginning, and back in 2015, when the war in Syria was raging, there was a lot more sympathy for migrants and, and refugees uh, than there is in 2019. Today, the makeup of the, the migrants and, and refugees has, has changed a lot too. So back in 2015, many more, much more of those migrants were, uh, were Arab. They were fleeing people like Bashar al-Assad. They were fleeing ISIS. Uh, you know, so they were extremely sympathetic. Uh, and the Europeans, in turn, were very sympathetic to what they were fleeing from. Uh, fast forward to 2019, most of the migrants you're seeing come into Europe are black. They're from sub-Saharan Africa. They're from uh, countries that are in terrible shape, but many of which aren't officially at war. So they don't come with as much sympathy and uh, don't come with the same technical label uh, that the United Nations gives them as being a refugee. They're labeled as economic migrants. And with that in mind, the politics and the attitudes have, have changed quite sharply in much of Europe, and especially in Italy, where I'm based. That was Chris Livesey, looking at migration moving into Europe from the Middle East as well as Africa. 
But in the case of Venezuela, according to the report of the United Nations, 3.5 million in Latin American and Caribbean migrate in these countries. In the case of Central America, especially in Guatemala, Salvador, and Honduras, have the highest migration numbers. Venezuela, with a dictatorial government that controls resources, these resources that 20 years ago made Venezuela economically stable, today we have an inflation, access to basic supplies denied, and high rates of insecurity leads to the desperation of many families to leave the country and seek an opportunity in other country. In the case of Northern Triangle, the witness of the state in providing a minimum opportunity for health education and security added to a little investment of a private sector generates an increase in crime in some areas, making an imperative to migrate to another country. That was Jorge Ceballos, commenting on the way that migration works within Latin America, whether it is migrants from Central America moving north into the United States or migrants from Venezuela moving into other countries around the region. Most recently, we have seen some tension between the United States and Mexico over Mexico's approach to the flow of undocumented migrants. In response, Mexico has moved thousands of its National Guard to its border with Guatemala to slow the influx of migrants from Central America. Across Latin America in general, after an initial period of open-arm acceptance, countries have begun to pass restrictions to slow and lessen Venezuelan migration. In Europe, Politicians in several countries, including Italy and to a lesser extent the UK, have capitalized on using migrants as a foil for policies that are nationalistic. However, migration continues. Why is that? And what further impact does this have on countries, both sending and receiving? Migration cannot be separated from countries' histories. Often, movement of people is tied to old connections between countries, whether colonial past or simply close economic ties. History tells you so much, all right? I mean, we, we don't have enough time right now to explore why the global south is industrially behind the, the global north, but there are some important points to pay attention to. I mentioned Eritrea before. Well, that's a part of the world where Italy happened to make an effort to colonize and uh, waged some pretty bloody wars there, also in, in neighboring Ethiopia. And it set that country back many years. Now I, I find it poetically and ironically uh, significant that you have people from these countries now trying their, their damnedest to, to get into Europe. Uh, I mean, a lot of Italians are completely unaware of their colonial past in these countries, and, and I, I think it would serve them well to, to revisit their, their history to understand why it is that there have been successive famines in these places and why it is that these countries that Italy used to control have struggled so much to catch up to Italy and to other countries in the West. While Italy is not the only country with these kind of past and these kinds of connections with others, it helps to see how receiving countries have long-standing links to sending countries. In other regions, sometimes the destination is based more on proximity than on a historical connection. Often these connections encourage migrants to struggle across geographical challenges. While in North America you have uh, migrants who are definitely risking their lives and taking uh, on a very dangerous journey, in many cases across the Sonora Desert, which is a very hot, very arid, very, very deadly, unforgiving environment, at least once you get across into the U.S. border, the journey is, is mostly over. In the case of 
migrants crossing the Mediterranean Sea, they first have to cross the Sahara Desert. So we're talking about thousands of kilometers in many cases just to get to the most miserable place in the world, which is Libya right now. And then you still have the Mediterranean Sea in front of you, which has claimed thousands and thousands of lives. While history might explain some of the logic behind why people move in a certain direction, it doesn't quite explain why they choose to leave. Each country or region often faces its own challenges and factors that feed into migration, but there are a handful of reasons that are common around the world. Push factors are oftentimes violence, are almost always economic, not always war. The other big factor that people forget, apart from war, is just that we live in a globalized world right now, and people like to reunify with their families once you welcome them into their country, into your country, that is. It's only natural that you know, people are going to eventually have their wives and their children and their cousins. And I mean, that's, that becomes a pull factor at a certain point. And the difference is that it's just much more feasible, I think, than it used to be, not just because of, you know, more sophisticated airplanes and ships, but mostly because of communication. You will say in some cases, because our ships and repression are the causes. In other places, the lack of human development due to the limited access opportunities. And finally, in some cases, for example, in Central America, it may have a link between the, these three factors. A political system that led to an internal war in many countries, lack of opportunities that result in a climate of insecurity. But we must emphasize that our different characteristics and situation depending on the place in Latin America. To accomplish these journeys, migrants rely on their wits, luck, and an infrastructure on the periphery of society that facilitates travel and communications. Jorge gives us a rough outline on the different paths available to migrants leaving Central America. There's two phases. The first phase is try to obtain a visa and go with the rules and try to do a, a legal migration. But there is a high number of people that they don't want to do that process and they want to do the things as fast as they can. And sometimes they sell their properties or even they have a loan and, and try to move, especially to the Mexican border, and then try to hire, hire some of like uh, coyotes or like the, the, the structure of the, the, the people that do a business in immigration and move for in Mexico in bus, sometimes in, in a train. And now the, the structures of migration sometimes changes to improve that, uh, that way. And sometimes people go uh, to the Mexican border in Guatemala and take a plane from that point to the north states, you know, like Tijuana or another ones like Nuevo León. And then they started walking or in the bus to try to cross the border in the United States. One element that has changed how migration works is communication. Here's Chris commenting on the way that technology has helped facilitate people moving across different borders. You want to know what the unifying factor is here. It's their smartphone. 
and everybody is on WhatsApp or everybody's on WeChat or everybody's on uh, you know Facebook using some kind of social media platform in order to make connections, in order to maintain friendships, in order to figure out where their friends wound up, you know, in order to see if their friends survived because you split up in the middle of the night and you want to know, hey, did my friend make it across the sea or did my wife make it across the mountains? Oh, she did. Great. And she's doing very well. She's found a group of volunteers who are providing food and, and lodging free of charge. I'm going to go there. I mean, all of this infrastructure would be impossible. I mean, the, the ability to coordinate and organize, it's, it's so transformational. It's, it's, it's providing the, the ability for, for people to migrate in numbers that are, are completely um, unprecedented. This movement and the infrastructure that has sprung up to facilitate it has fundamentally impacted politics the world over, particularly in countries receiving migrants. Forgive me for focusing on Italy so much, but I think it's also the best example. Italy has long been on the vanguard of political trends. So go back to May of, of last year. That's when things started to take a, a drastic turn. Up until that time, uh, Italy had a relatively welcoming uh, immigration policy. It was leading the rescue effort uh, in Europe when it came to migrants whose ships were, you know, adrift at sea. Uh, it was the first line of defense in its own efforts, you know, in, in using its own Coast Guard and military vessels to save migrants who were lost at sea, and in coordinating with charities who were operating their own vessels to, to rescue migrants. That changed last May when the country went to vote and elected coalition government that's made up of two parties, both populist, one that's a, a pretty far right-wing populist party called the League. They had a junior role in the government. However, that's shifted in the meantime. There were recently European parliamentary elections in which that same party, the League party, won 34% of the vote. So now it, with its, its very nationalist anti-migrant agenda is the biggest political force in the country. So with that, they've been able to change a lot of policies. The most severe was in blocking all NGO vessels uh, from docking in its ports. So there used to be a, a cottage industry of, of charities that would go and pick up migrants and, um, you know, deliver them, you know, to, to safety in, in, in Italy. That's come to a halt. Uh, that just does not exist anymore. And it's the primary reason behind why Italy has gone from being the number one recipient of migrants to being a uh, much further down the list now. This guy named Matteo Salvini, he's the head of the League Party. Uh, he's a very polarizing figure. He speaks in very strident anti-migrant terms. And he's been able to create this us-against-them mentality, at least amongst much of the Italian electorate. The government might collapse here as a, as a result of, of anti-migrant politics. And, and basically, the Italian electorate just coming around to it. I mean, every... every uh, Every chance Italians have had recently to vote on the basis of migration recently, ever since May of last year, it, uh, polls continue to show that Italians are more and more uneasy 
with the number of migrants that are here, even when those numbers are, are going down. Because as, as we explored earlier, they've closed the ports. So there's a very small number of migrants who are coming into Italy right now and who are even coming into Europe at large right now. That doesn't change the fact that there were already in, in Italy alone hundreds of thousands and in Europe at large millions of migrants who had entered in the last uh, few years. So those migrants are still there. What it means is that their future has become... Uh, more and more um, uncertain. While Chris is mostly talking here about Italy, it is also reflective of wider trends in Europe. The uncertainty and the precarious position of migrants in host countries only adds to these divisions. But these effects are felt not only in the receiving countries, but also in sending countries. There's a positive impact or a negative impact in both countries. The, the country that receives the people and the, the country that generates uh, the migration. In the case of the, the, the countries that generate the migration, obviously you lose labor force, you have a, a, a problems with family disintegration that obviously had an impact in a social way because the parents leave their child and they don't know if they will have the education, they will have the, the opportunities and Especially in Central America, we have the problem with the GANs. So maybe that people can be a space where the GANs can take uh, new members. So that generates insecurity and everything. While most of what Jorge talked about right there are social, the impact doesn't stop there. It is also economic, and it has wide-ranging effects. A charity that I came across in Italy years ago, it was called Rainbow for Africa. And the founder of the group was uh, is this woman from Eritrea who every day provides food and water for uh, migrants who are uh, sleeping on the streets in Rome. And she told me that the solution, which shocked me, was to prevent these people from leaving to begin with. I mean, that struck me as the kind of thing I was expecting, you know, a, a hardline nationalist to, to tell me, you know, we need to keep these people out. We need to make sure they stay home. But where she was coming from was, look, what's going to happen to my country, Eritrea, and all of these other countries in the developing world if all of their talent, if all of their youngest, brightest minds keep leaving? I mean, what does that mean? Because it's only the people with the best resources. It's only the smartest. It's only the brightest. It's only the healthiest people who are able to try and get into Western Europe or try and get into the U.S. for that matter. I mean, what does this mean for the future? I think a lot of it has to do with optics. It has to do with the fact that, hey, I'm 18 years old and I've been conscripted into the military in Eritrea and life sucks. I don't want to do this. Now I'm looking at social media and seeing that my cousin is doing really well over in Rome. And look, he's leaning on a Ferrari. Man, if I, if I go to Italy, I'll get a Ferrari too. Um, this happens, right? I know migrants who uh, have, they go out of their way to take pictures that make it look like their life is much better uh, in, in uh, the Western world than it actually is. Why is that? Well, it's because their village back home gave them all of their money all of their resources, did everything it possibly could to make sure that this one person was going to have a better life. And then maybe, 
be able to send money home or maybe be able to bring some of them back to Italy. So making all of these, after making all of these sacrifices, it would break their hearts to find out that, well, I'm actually living in squalor. You know, I'm actually living in an illegal migrant camp without regular water and electricity, and I'm sharing a room with five other people. I mean, that's not the message, the heroic message that, that many of these migrants want to send home. So oftentimes they'll, they'll take pictures and to suggest a different narrative than, than what's reality. Reminds me of the, the social science that, that Charles Murray tends to explore. He wrote a great book called Coming Apart that looked, bit, looked at white America. In, uh, in the 21st century and what was happening with the kind of brain drain that we're witnessing in the US where people are leaving, uh, leaving small town America and going to live in big cities. Those who can, of course, those who were smart enough and had the resources to go and get a job working for a big tech firm in Silicon Valley, that's great for them, but what does that do to Topeka, Kansas, where they came from? You know, I mean, it's it's a story we see repeated all over the place. We see it happening in the developing world. It's going to be much harder for some of these countries to develop, I think, uh, if if their brightest talent is is only given one option, which is to go uh, away if they have any chance for a future. So I think that we have to make a concerted effort to work with developing countries. And I think we've learned at this point in in time that it's mutually beneficial to come up with a way of regulating migration, but with compassion, one that actually invests resources in developing countries so that the people there feel like they have a, an alternative to fleeing the country so that they can actually stay in their country and, and build towards a future. I mean, there are developing countries in Sub-Saharan Africa and in, in uh, Latin America, for that matter. Some that are having explosive growth. I mean, the growth opportunities in, in a lot of these places are enormous. If you know how to use your resources in Nigeria, you can multiply your investment in ways that you're never going to do in Italy. So if you could change that narrative, then uh, I think you'd be onto something. But it's going to take a lot of work. As both Chris and Jorge have mentioned, migration has deep impacts in both countries. And the challenge lies in how we respond to it. An important element is creating the governing structures that will help establish the economic and social opportunities for people to thrive in their home countries. It requires building up democratic institutions that can realistically and effectively address challenges and obstacles like corruption, crime, employment, education, and many more that can only be addressed through sustained cooperation. Even now, if we call the United States or Central America, they have to work together to resolve and try to minimize the migrations. But there is a process. Some of the causes are the common in some region, but you have to identify some very specific topics to addresses and try to coordinate the communication between the countries that receive migration and the countries that generate. I think we have to to understand that we need to work in two areas. The first is the institutional work, that is create a strong government institutions, because if they don't feel part of a process, if they don't feel part of a country that support them in education, um, security, and when we talk security, it's not just 
police is justice system and all around that. If the people don't believe in that, well, they say, I don't feel part of this country. And the other way, we need to work with civil society and with the citizens that they understand the migration. Obviously, it's a possibility, but it's a risk. We have to combine the work in these two places. Try to create a minimal agenda to address the migration routes, especially in and understand that corruption is the root of some of the gaps in the governments. If it, there is a corruption, we're going to have education, a security, and a health institutions weak, and we need to resolve that so the people feel part of a process, feel part of a country, and feel that they have uh, opportunities to create a, a development in that place, and they don't need to move another. I'd like to give a big thanks to both Chris Lipsey and Jorge Zabayos for speaking to us about immigration from two different yet very similar contexts. In our next episode, we're going to look at the world's largest democracy, India, and the role that it plays in the region and also on the global stage. If you enjoyed the show, please rate us and review us on iTunes and subscribe. Global is now on Spotify, so if that's where you listen to your podcast, you'll be able to hear us there. Until next time, I'm Travis Green, and thanks for listening to Global. Global.